So this week I talked to Dr. Giles Yates, who's a consultant clinical neuropsychologist working in a pioneering way in community settings to support mental health, relationships, communication with people with neurological conditions. We talk about the focus of his work, the interface with Tai Chi and martial arts, but also aspects of career development, finding your niche in clinical neuropsychology. So welcome to the Neuro Clinic. I have the pleasure of having the company of Dr. Giles Yates. Welcome, Giles. Hi, Ingrid. Pleasure to be with you. Hi there. And you. So um, I, as is conventional, I've asked you to introduce yourself. Are you happy to, to tell us who you are? Definitely. So um, I have a couple of overlapping identities, I guess. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and I'm a um, emotionally focused couples therapist and I'm also a uh, martial arts instructor for Tai Chi and Kung Fu and um, those aspects interact in my clinical practice. Um, I'm also an editor of a book series and journal neurodisability and psychotherapy and brain injury book series for uh, Routledge and um, I'm a part-time academic. I'm at Oxford Brooks, um, where I'm involved in some um, uh, research work for myself and some collaborations. And more recently, I've been um, module lead for the interventions module for the new Salomon's Neuro course. Um, so I think those are all the bits and bobs floating around in my working life at the minute. So it's, it's, it's quite a diverse portfolio, and it sounds like there are some things aren't there that, that maybe I mean one of the one of the things that's been really interesting about this podcast is is understanding something of the journey that people have been on you know the, the, at what point did you see the kind of I mean was the, did the Tai Chi come before the neuropsychology and at what point did that interface strike you as a kind of something to to explore further yeah that was that was kind of quite a random thing well in that I've always um my non-working life, I've always been a martial arts practitioner. Um, and um, in my about 10, year, yeah, 10 years ago this year, um, I went to China for a second time and studied with um, the Taoist monks um, and nuns in Wudang Mountain in China and took a real step into that world. Um, and became a disciple um, of Lin Shang. So I'm, you might have heard of the, the rap group, the Wu-Tang Clan. I'm officially yeah. in the Wu-Tang Clan. So they call wow. themselves after this cult of uh, Kung Fu monks and nuns, and I'm, I'm part of that lineage. Um, so I can claim to be in the Wu-Tang Clan. Um, but I did that as a personal thing, as a kind of way to um, um, kind of combat the impact of work and, and have a different experience of work. And I kept them separated until one day I just happened to come across a, a paper on Tai Chi in stroke rehab, I think it was. And I read it and the focus of the paper was on physical gains from the intervention. It was written by physios and, and nurses, I think. And there was no description of the internal psychological dimension of Tai Chi and how that could be um, helpful for um, people recovering from acquired brain injury. And I thought, they're, they're just missing the points. I, I couldn't believe it. Like, it's described in this alien language. And, you know, it's, it's the, it would, the internal dimension was kind of the key focus of most Tai Chi practitioners. 
and the masters who teach them. And the physical abilities almost come as a, a secondary co coincidental byproduct. And actually, then as a psychologist, we think, well, everyone is missing a trick here. The, the concept of the internal experience of Tai Chi could have innate value. And then that, that kind of sent me down a whole line. And um, we kind of, myself, some colleagues at Brooks put in some grant applications and we were successful. And suddenly we had some money to play with. And suddenly we were then, um, it, it all kind of, all, all suddenly kind of kicked up a gear um, within a period of about three years. Um, which is really fascinating because also allowed me to do more Tai Chi um, in my work role as well and then um, develop the concepts. And I was just also really interested in bringing a completely new concept into rehab rather than a new type of therapy or something like that. You know, a new psychological construct into rehab felt really exciting. So in a sense, it's the concept of flow. Um, you know, there was a time when no one was talking about mindfulness. Now everyone talks about mindfulness. You know, there are other such constructs coming from the East and um, the equivalent was flow psychology that kind of links in the positive psychology. But then to think, how would you construct uh, rehabilitation interventions based on this idea of flow? What would be unique about that? So it's just, it, just, it just kind of propelled itself, really, um, and allowed me to um, the fun allowed me just to kind of turn up at psychology conferences in my Tai Chi robes and quote Bruce Lee at people, which is just wonderful. Yeah. I mean, did it did it feel like a, a risk? I suppose I'm thinking about I recently read the McMindfulness book. I don't know if you've come across it, but it's about yeah. how, uh, you know, various um, aspects of mindfulness were stripped from it in terms of the translation into neuropsychology. I was struck by what you were talking about stumbling across the stroke rehab paper and whether you feel there was a risk in terms of something you cared about in all its richness in your personal life being how misappropriated within a within a neuropsychological framework i mean did it feel like a risk in terms of you carrying the tai chi with you across that across that boundary right i think it, yeah i was i was aware of that that's why i kind of needed to find the right kind of core construct that anchored the focus in a particular way hence the idea of flow um which is another way of describing a very esoteric Chinese um, account of internal alchemy um, from a Taoist traditional Chinese medicine position, but essentially experientially, it's about flow and movement and change. And that staying in that um, kept it kind of true to the spirit in which I learned Tai Chi and practice it. Um, and um, yeah, I've seen that happen in mindfulness. I've seen it kind of, you know, being redescribed, stripped down to a concept of attentional training or something like yes. that, which many people would challenge um, to make it more so it, palatable perhaps right so to people who don't right. want the spiritual baggage right. to come with it and, and and yeah sorry i interrupted you yeah well that's it and I, I didn't want the spiritual baggage for people either you know um that's a personal kind of expression but i think um it, it took me a while to kind of find the right kind of construct but everyone knows what it's like to be in the flow to lose themselves in the flow and activity perfect yeah, yeah, I, I, and I, I suppose the other kind of rather crass way of asking the question is it hasn't spoilt it for you, right? So bringing it to work hasn't contaminated, you know, in terms of that boundary that we might like to keep mm. between things that, that interest us personally, you know, whether it's whether it's beekeeping or, or martial arts or, you know, whatever it is, 
do you do you see any risks in terms of the other side of things in terms of what you get enjoyment from personally and bringing that stuff to work does it kind of feel more like you're always working yeah well doing that kind of stuff that's okay that's fine that's you know that's that's kind of having those practices and applying them in different ways i think it, it does feel different um because i i teach i teach tai chi and kung fu to the general population as well um yes. and, and i practice so it, it's just it's kind of i think it's deep in my understanding of the practices and what it offers and, and what's important for me so yeah no there's no there's been no kind of fatigue through it um it keeps giving really and i suppose one of the other things i i um i think i mentioned to you well i did mention to you just before we um we started recording that i had a you know very vibrant conversation about rehabilitation or with young people uh, who've had brain injuries with penny trainer and she talked about her innovative approaches to um, using DJing and DJing tuition as part of a, a broad rehabilitation program. And I suppose some of those things about alongside the innovation is a, is a, is a sort of, um, you know, a, a sort of provocation, I suppose, of a system around rehabilitation that's, that had become rather narrow in its focus and and very sort of task oriented whether it's about making cups of tea or or making a a meal or whatever the kind of kitchen uh, focused approach to rehabilitation i'm wondering whether you experienced any resistance from those sort of more conventional uh standpoints you know i've always had really inspiring figures within rehabilitation um from early from early doors who've kind of described the how whatever it takes, however it takes, whatever form it takes, rehab is kind of by its nature, a kind of radically subversive activity and a creative activity. I'll give you my favorite example. So I'm a Star Wars fan. I love Star Wars, right? Yeah. And, um, hence the Kung Fu. I can, it's the closest I can get to being a Jedi Knight. Yeah. I love Star Wars. And I was at a conference in, um, in New York and I was speaking alongside George Brigatano and yeah. like, complete since i was assistant psychologist completely in awe of that manner of thing he's written and all his traditions and um we both ended up in the same hotel and woke up next morning after flying in the night before jet lagged and he was waiting for me in the lobby and yeah. he amazingly courteous and wanted to take a cab with me so we were going through his cab through new york city to the conference and he was telling me about his, the, the last client he worked with who felt he was becoming too much like Anakin Skywalker and, and wanted, or no, it was too much Anakin Skywalker on the turn to Darth Vader and described an entire rehabilitation about keeping him in the light side of the force and not turning to Darth Vader and how yeah. all the elements of an IDT were constructed on that basis. And, what and, and none of it looked like a, a definition of rehabilitation, but yeah, it was yeah. in that, within that identity work, you know, that Ilva Saka stuff as well. I know you've talked about this with Fergus as well. You know, yeah. the, it's, it, it's, it's whatever it takes to find that kind of scaffolding process of um, reacquiring skills, using compensation strategies to get people to a point of well-being and equilibrium. And that can have so many forms. And I think, you know, and that's what's so fascinating for us as clinicians, right? It, it's so wonderful, so creative. And then I contrast that with some where you see kind of rehab coming out from an academic angle. Um, 
that tends to always somehow involve someone sat in front of a computer as an intervention. It's like, you know, it, yeah, I, I know which world I'd rather be in. Um, uh, and, but equally, you know, bringing the neuroscience into the creativity is so key as well, because neuroscience and, and contemporary various challenge our assumptions of how we should be doing things as well. So the interface between the two is really important. I mean, the other thing that you said is the is sort of introduction is around the emotionally focused couples therapy that you've been mm. advocating. I mean, what, I mean, again, I suppose it's hard to kind of characterize, or for me, it's kind of hard to see uh, that as something other than a shift from a, maybe a focus purely on an individual, uh, a recognition of the wider system, a recognition of the importance of understanding how relationships are affected by, by brain injury. And I suppose the, the, the risk, it would seem to me, is that we kind of lose a sense of who's the client, if that makes sense. So is it the individual or is it the couple? And have you have you managed to kind of I mean, I assume you have, you know, kind of work out well, how do you how do you get a sense of who you're working with, who you're working for when you're working with couples and mm. when you're working with wider systems? Mm. Mm. A reasonable question, Giles. It's a really interesting question. And I think the framing of their response depends on your assumptions of models of mind, personhood. You know, if you, what was so exciting for me um, in my clinical training was um, kind of, I did a, a neuropsychology rehab placement at the Oliver Zang Center, Mafonia, alongside a systemic family therapy placement um, in adult mental health. And hearing from a systemic perspective kind of relational views of mind that mind doesn't stop here it's not located in our cranium it's distributed just distributed it's we are in an interconnected tapestry of mind um you know we i always quote the examples of you know when when i used to do a psychotherapy group with 10 people with executive difficulties i would come out of that group disexecutive I wouldn't be able, I was tangential, I couldn't focus. I don't think I suddenly acquired a lesion in my Brodman's area 10, you know, but from me being interconnected in mind in the group, my mind was altered. And, you know, when you get into the social brain and you get into the ideas of intersubjectivity and systems of relationship and thinking that connect with other brains, and then you have a lesion in one brain that is compromising the mind of those significant to the survivor. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, where do you demarcate lines there? And we know that one of the biggest kind of um, clinical costs of a lesion in the brain is the breakdown of relationships around the client and patient. So, you know, on clinical need, it also doesn't make sense to demarcate the lens of clinical need on the survivor because the nature of distress inherently involves other people. And, and other people are distressed and it's the breakdown of interconnection between people. Um, and equally, if you do vocational rehabilitation, there's a breakdown of working relationships and um, adherence of social convention. Often people can do the job, but the people, things break down in lunch breaks when people say something inappropriate to work colleagues. And then the, the, the supervisor, the boss doesn't know how to manage this. So prematurely, um, sacks the survivor because they can't have yes. a conversation you know where is the client there in vocational rehab you know um, if you I think if you focus on the, the, the connections between people 
then it's then it's a, quite a pragmatic. Who needs to be in this piece of work? You know, who's yes. being affected? Um, you're looking at the glue between people rather than saying it's this person versus this person. Um, I suppose the question for me would be who decides who gets invited into the room? So if you took that mm. occupational example, you know, it may well be that someone following a brain injury is in a is in a formal dispute with their em, em, mm. em, employer about something and I, I, presumably presents all kinds of practical boundaries about how you contract with an individual and a wider a wider system. I mean, does that cause you difficulty? I mean, I assume that, that there are parallels in terms of work with couples in in a relationship about whether that relationship is sustained or not through that right, through that right. work. How do you how do you negotiate those kinds of issues? Yeah, I I, I generally take the lead from the person in the room. So at the, out from the outset, who needs to come? And then yes. when you first meet someone, who who needs to be with us next? You know, and people describe who's in their life, you you kind of you know explore. Generally I've worked in always worked service where you invite um, you invite, a, say, a survivor and someone significant to them. And but, you know, if, if someone makes a, a very clear choice not to bring someone with them, then that's fine. But, you know, having that invitation is important. You yeah. know, I'd always noticed that f- families have been, have been fragmented by the lesion itself, the injury itself, and then further partitioned and demarcated by service um uh, tendencies, you know, the idea that rehab should only be for the person who's got the brain injury and relatives, they might get a relatives group if they're lucky and they're farmed out um, you know, and are not part of the journey that the survivor may take. And they're not given that choice. I think it's really important to have individual conversations with survivors. I think it's important that survivors get to speak to other survivors uh, and have that unique example. I think uh, I think it's important that relatives get to speak to other relatives and without survivors present and talk about like kind of taboo issues like uh, I wish they hadn't survived or something like yes. that. You know, uh, but but that 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 should be those should be options and choices. Uh, and yes. you know, 20 years ago we were kind of fighting the course of this, and I think unfortunately with COVID and everything, I think it's only kind of gone the other way that people are not invited to come together as a, as a group and go on a journey together. And kind of individualist tendencies in service responses just take that choice away from people. And it's about choice. They don't force couples or family work on people um, and give people a choice. But um, often giving people a choice is quite a, a, a radical thing. I, I remember, uh, so the one example that I think really just kind of always a main example is I think Jenny Ogden talks about her work in quite remote communities in in um, New Zealand and how they would spend the whole day traveling to this kind of remote community um, like a Maori community where a, a survivor had a brain injury and they were they were kind of put up in the the moai the the community hall they went to sleep in sleeping bags and they kind of woke up expecting maybe to have their session with the survivor and his parents or something. And they were there and the whole village was there. Everyone had come, sat around them. And now, now we all talk, yeah. you know? So just it, things like that kind of just, it's giving people choices and, and having a big enough room, uh, but seeing who, you know, taking the lead. And I think the most important people come and, and when certain people don't come, that leads to, 
kind of more questions and, and points of curiosity that are often really important therapeutically to find out why certain people are coming, other people are not. Why is that? And that's that kind of systemic curiosity of like, who's in the room? Who's talking? What story are we hearing right now? What are we not hearing? Who's not here? Why is that? And I suppose you're also making a point, aren't you, about the 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 breadth of our portfolio that we offer to individuals at the kind of service level, the way that services are designed is kind of narrowing a, a remit and and excluding certain choices from that from that repertoire. So there's something about how we design services, how we make sure the rooms are big enough to accommodate the people who need to be brought into that conversation. Is, is that right? There's something that there is a little bit more provocative about the stance you're adopting and saying there there's something misdesigned about some services in terms of not allowing the right people to come into the room or the mm-hmm. purple pe- people are invited by those survivors and not necessarily accommodated as readily as they should be yeah i mean i would say that as just an extension of the medical model you know the healthcare yes. model that that assumes a, 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 a an isolated individual to be done to and ignores uh, relationships and the biopsychosocial nature of all things and you know uh, the social context in which health conditions manifest and you know are occur all these things that are broader issues than clinical neuropsychology but yeah um I think for me in the last couple of years moving away from the health service and working in third sector has been really interesting because I've because I found there's been much less resistance to these ideas about duration of intervention, that there's, there's less support, less money, but that the idea of a, it being a community endeavor and a really, a really community endeavor and, and that it's about communities and relationships and groups seems to be the starting point, you know, which is yes. amazing for me. Anyway. Yes. No, and it sounds amazing to me, but I'm, I'm here. I am sitting in a, in a hospital, I suppose, constrained by the sort of infrastructure around me, but also the models of service delivery that come with that sort of institutional um, uh, status. Um, referrals that come with a named individual where the rooms are, you know, typically, I mean, I'm seeing children, so I'm often seeing parents. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of what you're saying uh, resonates very powerfully with me in terms of how we maybe need to nudge at some of the assumptions uh, around how we deliver services but we are constrained to an extent aren't we by our employers by the models that exist within the services that we that we practice in and I suppose I was wondering what what advice would you have for someone like me who's persuaded but also feels constrained I mean should I be getting out and going and working with charities and third sector organizations and and challenging some of the the constraints that exist in the in the place I'm working right now. I think if it feels the right thing to do, if that's where the wind takes you, definitely. You know, I was really lucky that um, I worked for 13 years at Andy Tymon Service, the Community yes. Energy Service in Aylesbury, where I, it was always a dream of mine to work there, and that that was, I think, probably the most radical. Um, clinical community brain injury service in the UK, I would say, in that when I arrived, um, they there were multiple files. So there was a file for the survivor and a file for the relative. They were both clients. There was co-therapy. Um, there were um, um, the, the concept of, um, you know, multiple clinicians in a room, long, long-term scope for 
interventions, there was a tradition of interest in psychological therapies. And because vocational rehab was a core part of it as well, uh, and we, we were out in all kinds of places doing all kinds of things and people. And I think Andy had a free reign to set that up in the 90s. Um, and he just had a blank slate. So he set it up that way. And it's only become more and more radical, I think, you know. Yes. Um, so that's when it's set up like that, it, I guess it's 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 easier to keep it going than to try and sculpt something from an opposite position. I yes. think what is helpful is when you collaborate with a non-NHS organization like a third sector, you create this kind of, um, everyone Everyone thinks it's a wonderful thing, first of all, collaboration. Yeah. Um, it ticks off sheets. People, you know, who might be on your case are quite happy about that. It also creates this kind of hinter no man's land between the two places where yes. actually certain policy procedure Kind of don't apply so you, you can then there's some freedom um that's a big thing with tai chi actually and this idea of liminality the liminal state where you're not one thing or the other so in yeah. that kind of in, in between states you and your collaborator could be really creative um and often finding things like um yeah um renting a different location in the community yeah. to your clinic and then what does that new space afford in terms of different kinds of interactions you know what does the spirit of how does the spirit of third sector um, invite new kind of ideas in the health setting and vice versa? You know, I think the, the collaborations are definitely a key key way forward, I'd say. The, 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 the Andy Time and Service was a community brain injury uh, service, right? I, just, I wondered right. about the sort of contrast in terms of the constraints of the the buildings, the, the broader conceptual infrastructure. How do you see the contrast between inpatient rehabilitation services and, and, and community services? I've always been struck by the, the particular culture that seems to exist in inpatient rehabilitation. I'm not making a judgment about that, but I just I wondered whether you kind of seen a contrast between the sort of focus and the, 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 the way in which rehabilitation is addressed in inpatient settings and, and, and a community community service. Right. Well, my disclaimer is I've never worked in inpatient in a qualified. I you know, did a bit during training things, but um, it, it's never appealed to me. So I've never gone there. From, from colleagues who, who've, who've worked in both or has gone from one to the other, what I hear, I think um, some of the differences would be about perhaps medical dominance and uh, yeah. hierarchy, which... Um, sometimes can work well, sometimes can constrain psychological kind of perspective or psychosocial perspective. Um, also the kind of th that time limited intervention, because there's an, an, there's an often a little throughput. And so um, people, you, you don't get to maybe the more stable picture of difficulties and disabilities that, um, that that's been my bread and butter really, you know, you know, yeah. people's, both psycho forms of psychological distress and relationship breakdown increase in years one to two to five. So often that's when a lot of inpatient or imp is, they're done and dusted by that, but that's when the real challenges that affect multiple people that stick around manifest themselves. So that's always been my own work. And it's interesting seeing people kind of pass through uh, where there've been very profound changes in the patient, perhaps in key physical markers of recovery but all of that subtle stuff has not even been seen yet. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm careful because I don't want to make comments that I'm not, I have no expertise in. Yeah. 
But I suppose it sounds as though when you talk about your journey that you've been fortunate, I suppose, to have people around you who've 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 been able to 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 liberate you to pursue things that you think are the right things to pursue that you think are of interest to you working psychologically with this client group um, and that you haven't personally felt constrained, I suppose, by conventional ways of, of doing things. That, that's my intolerance. I, I would never put myself in a situation where <laughs> you know, I, I, would, I would be awful at it because I don't think I could inhibit myself. I would be the worst colleague in the world if I felt I was on a different, come from a different perspective. And I've only become more intolerant to that as I go. And I think my my personal kind of setup would be is like, be around people that inspire me. Uh, not necessarily people who think the same thing, but, but where there is, is there's excitement. And if I don't think I would survive very long if I felt constrained or at such odds. So, so I don't think I could ever work within a, a, a medically dominated team. Just couldn't do it. It just wouldn't, you know. Um, and I've always been, you know, from from the people I talked about, George Brigitte before, and Oliver Sacks before. Uh, you know, I, I, I've always wanted to go into kind of an existentially orientated engagement with phenomenological worlds of people neural conditions that's always been the thing so so it's always felt that community work gets gets you closest to your work being inside an Oliver Sacks book if that makes sense yeah, yeah. plus all plus all of the creativity that we've already talked about and um you know the diversity and certainly unpredictability and some people have been really don't like that some people like the the constraints of an orderly ordered environment and I'm not, I'm, that's just not my kind of personality. But I like the unknown of where are we going to be, like what's going to be happening. And, and within that, thinking on your feet to actually use clinical neuropsychological theory in really unexpected places and moments and locations. Yes. And I suppose, yeah. you know, hearing that, those stories and hearing people talk about how they found a comfortable place to work as a psychologist is really helpful to, to those people, I suppose, who might feel constrained by where they work or 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 how they're supervised or how they're managed. Um, and, and, and you know, to recognize that that's uncomfortable sometimes and to recognize mm. that actually there are ways that you might challenge that. Um, mm. But there are also routes out of that into other spaces where you might find your ideas uh, can go further and you can feel more comfortable and I suppose what I'm what I was um suggesting is perhaps you've as you say you've, there are some things that you've not had the misfortune to experience but there might be other people who are feeling uncomfortable with where they're at and they might need some help to recognize that some of that comes with uh, the, the dominant models some of it comes with the sort of orient the, the necessary sometimes orientation of the work at a particular phase of rehabilitation but there are other places in which we can work effectively as as neuropsychologists aren't there and I think that's what you're what you're illustrating in terms of your your journey that, that other people might also find that they're interested in those ideas right and and that kind of idea of the the broad church of clinical neuropsychology the pluralism within that I mean yes. that's something that I've been really excited in, in working on the Salomon's course and really yes um really pushing forward a um a, a kind of psychotherapy as a core dimension of clinical neuropsychology, you know, yes. and the community focus and the kind of psychosocial focus and, you know, um, and how that links to social neuroscience and, you know, 
um, and how that's very contemporary from a neuroscientific perspective as well. So I think you do, people do assume that clinical neuropsychology is one thing. And I think definitely when, when, I, when I qualified, which was in 2003, people were, were, were making the case, seemed to, apart from George Pigatano and Ben Yeshe and, um, and, and um, the Barbara Wolfenlose making, who worked at the Exam Centre, that you were fighting to create a space for the remit of emotionally supportive work being an aspect of clinical neuropsychology. You know, all the clinical neuropsychology textbooks, these big heavy tomes, and there might be one chapter on emotion. Um, yeah. And they weren't very neuroscientific, actually. They weren't, they weren't contemporary. And within the chapter on emotion, there would be half a page on intervention, you know, and the rest would, you know, I love clinical neuropsychological theory and seeing that there are all of these possibility departments and colleagues uh, in the UK or elsewhere who are pursuing that identity as clinical neuropsychologists. That's key to like this, if, if this version, if this flavor of clinical neuropsychology in your current space is not working for you, others are available, go find out about them. So, so Ingram, you were talking about, you know, how, how, how to support someone, what would advice be to someone who's working in a particular clinical neuropsychology setting or department? Um, and they, it may not be fitting for them. They may feel that, that, that they may not feel able to um, innovate some area of change and feel like there's a clash for them in working practices or maybe the, the kind of culture of that department. I, I would say that, um, you know, that's, that may be one flavor of clinical neuropsychology other versions of clinical neuropsychology are available. It's a broad church. Yes. And I think teaching trainees, um, trainees, clinical psychologists always say like, these are the possibilities of clinical neuropsychology, you know. Um, these are the, you know, these are the, the versions and this is the broad church. This It, it can be as much about um, psychotherapy, supporting the existential phenomenal worlds of survivors. It could be about su supporting communities and social relationships um, informed by clinical neuropsychology theory. All of these things are possible. I think seeing those different versions, you know, when I qualified in 2003, people were a sub-selection of a minority were trying to make a case for emotionally supportive work. You know, there was a, a special issue of neuropsychological rehabilitation in 2003 on psychosocial work you know a case had to be made that clinical neuropsychology wasn't just about cognitive rehabilitation or um, assessment only you would get these big kind of tomes in, in the in the 90s and the early noughties that that had um, most of the domains of cognition covered and a small chapter on emotion and within that half a page on how to support emotional changes you know, and as I said, I come from being inspired by Oliver Sacks, Luria, you know, George Prigatone. Where is that in these, you know, where is that? And then seeing that actually, oh, the people who write these books do not do this kind of work, you know. Um, but then conversely, seeing that um, a lot of people who are kind of um, advocating for um, psychological therapies in with neurological um, clients, we're not being sufficiently informed by clinical neuropsychological theory, you know, and I think that was the, the beauty of the training model in the UK is from clinical psychologists, then 
post-qualification training that that all of those threads of development and theory can be brought together in very creative ways. So I would say to people, as I do when I supervise um, colleagues who are feeling in a bit of rut, other versions of clinical neuropsychology are available. Find out who's doing what, how they're doing, where they are, make connections. And it's certainly been one of the sort of take-home messages for me that I've had a, a rather when I get invited to to teach on a doctorate in clinical psychology, adopting, you know, a, an inappropriately narrow view, I think, of what, of the picture that I paint. And we all have a responsibility, don't we, when we find ourselves in that interface to make sure that the plurality of roots and, and versions of neuropsychology that are on offer to people in terms of these, these career choices is much broader than is illustrated by any one of us individually, right? Mm. Um, and I and I think I'm certainly persuaded we need to get away from, you know, focusing on the whisk and the waste as being that, you know, people say, oh, I've had neuropsychology teaching because someone brought the brought the whisk in. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not I'm not really sure that, that was sufficient. <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying we don't need to learn those things, but we do need to make sure that we're painting a slightly broader palette than the kind of psychometric tools that we might have available, um, because that 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 does very significantly misrepresent what neuropsychology is in practice and what's important to us as neuropsychologists. But well, it has its place too, like, you know, neuropsychotherapy yeah, yeah. has to be informed by a cognitive profile, right? And a, and a, a comprehensively identified one where, you know, that all the, the dissociations are teased out and, and then you would apply those contrasts in the format in which you create a, an emotionally supportive space with someone, you know, and how that would be radically different with the next person you support. And I think, yeah, that, that's what makes, I think, the role of a clinical research so fascinating because there's such richness in our theoretical training and, and the potentials for the application of these different threads of our knowledge base. You're, 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 you're right. And I, I suppose I worry about um, trying to do all things though that sometimes we'll say actually you need a really good formulation and in, in order to have a really good formulation you need to have a really good kind of um, assessment a, a formal assessment that we can we can spend a lot of time developing that formulation and have precious little resource left to actually do what the client might want us to help them with does that make sense so I worry a little bit about the emphasis sometimes being a little bit out of balance um, and uh, my own service, I suppose, has been characterized by being focused on diagnostic assessment with a very thin chapter, as you put it, on the kind of the things that the client, family, young person might want help with. And that's sort of tagged on at the end as a series of bullet points. But we invest all of our resource in the kind of diagnostic formulation side of things. Oh, I don't disagree with you, but I think that, that if the balance is wrong, I think maybe we need to call that what it is and, and say it's it's wrong. You know, it's wrong if someone comes wanting X, we should at least be able to kind of account for why we haven't delivered X or we've kind of fallen mm. short somehow of their expectations around the kind of help that they were looking for. Yeah. Also, that sounds like that kind of balance in that way that you're describing is defined by an endpoint of service provision where, the time's run out and the time's being used up for assessment. Yes. Whereas I would you know, advocate for both where, yes, there's a comprehensive period of assessment and then there is a long trajectory of support following yes. that, informed yeah. by that. Um, and you're, you're walking alongside 
um, clients in the long game. That is um, the, the 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 lifespan nature of neurological conditions. You know, inform uh, and that comprehensive assessment just keeps yielding more and more fruits as you go yes. along. Yes. Um, yeah, and I mean that that's that's always been informed by my background. You know, working at the Oliver Samuel Center, it was always detailed assessment first keep using that assessment throughout the course of um, the intervention and in vocational rehabilitation you know we have we would always do um, nine hours of neuropsychological assessment three times three hours covering all domains but we would use that um, information time and time again as the person negotiated different work roles you know you know if they change jobs and their environment change we'd go back to that assessment and see yeah. what that meant for ergonomic design of the subsequent new assessment so it, it, it's yeah it's it's and then but then you're right Ingram, about where we've got to meet the client where they're at what are they asking for and maybe all these things help us unpack the counterintuitive nature of neurodisability um to help someone kind of move forward from where they're at but equally if it's a lot of time that's not appearing relevant or appearing um client-centered so the people want to use the services we have to we have to question how we how we offer that um often the way assessments are fed back can be emancipatory patriotic liberating or very distressing very disempowering right um unfortunately Charles, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I, I did, I did, I didn't promise you a quiz. I said we would kind of set that to one side, but I do want to ask you what your favourite Star Wars film is. Empire Strikes Back. Does everybody say Empire Strikes Back? The real Star Wars fans do. The real Star Wars fans do. Charles, it's been a pleasure talking to you. One thing that I didn't ask you about, and it might be great to get you back on this, but one thing that I just, I just welcome your sort of brief comments on really is is that we we've we've um, had conversations outside of this about um sexuality after brain injury and i enjoyed uh, watching some of your youtube videos um talking very eloquently sensitively about sexuality after brain injury and articulating just how important it is i suppose that we consider it as an issue for our for our clients and i suppose as someone who works with young people uh you know in a pediatric service it's a particular challenge i think in terms of our um conventions around the kind of conversations it's okay to have the kind of conversations it maybe feels less comfortable for us to have as clinicians and i i suppose i i, I just and again it's a big theme isn't it and i don't want to do it mm. uh, disservice but i i wondered what your how you might encourage those of us who feel uncomfortable but recognize that this is an important issue but but maybe don't feel skilled or experienced in in addressing and addressing issues of sexuality with with our clients mm. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's definitely a, dif a difficult area and an area that causes a lot of hesitancy for colleagues. I think. I think what's guided me is 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 hearing my own experiences and from some of the, re the research out there that service users want us to go there. They want us to go there. Um, you know, there are um, we know in which so many domains of functioning are radically altered with a neurological condition and, and sexuality is, you know, is one of them. And people have 
very profound changes in their experience of sexual arousal, um, the embodiment of themselves as sexual beings, um, contact with other people in pursuit of a sexual life. And all of that stuff kind of stays in the shadows. And that's quite a profound area of life. Uh, well, you know, outside of rehab neurosibility, many people's sexual lives stays in the shadows, right? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think disability often robs people of that choice to keep it in the shadows or, or so the people may, you know, are kind of forced by disability to reach out for help because it's just not sorting itself out and the shadows are no longer a useful place to be. People need to have a conversation about something that's changed quite radically. And, and the, the survey data in both stroke and TBI asking service use just comes back every time. We want to be asked. And again, when I routinely started asking, um, the worst that happens is people say, I, I don't want to talk anymore about that and fine. But most people say, I'm really glad you asked me about that. And it opens up a new conversation, you know. And I, you know, for me, I've I'll be more or less hesitant depending on the gender of the person I'm talking to, the age of the person I'm talking to. But yes. I found that actually those assumptions never serve me. Right? Sometimes people prefer to talk about it with with someone from a point of difference, you know. And yes. so all you can do is openly say it's it's important to talk about it. Um, and, and to go take it back to clinical neuropsychology, you know, this stuff um, is getting on the map from a clinical neuropsychology perspective, you know, social cognition, effective neuroscience, the, the changes in interoception that accompany many lesions um, link to um, sexual arousal and changes in embodied experience. And, you know, conversely, sexual relationship therapists are struggling to make sense of um, how to support people with neurological conditions using conventional sexual relationship therapy, psychosexual therapy techniques. So the conversations between clinical neuropsychologists and psychosexual therapists talking to is a really fascinating and innovative place, I think. Um, I would say check out, reach out to um, COSRAT, um, C-O-S-R-T, the, um, the College of Sexual Relationship Therapists. And you can do some quite immediately accessible CPD um, around ways to ask about sexuality, um, ways to um, and basic understandings of the common approach to kind of psychosexual intervention. Um, and some of the core principles are kind of familiar. So for example, sensate focus with couples is, is a kind of moving through a hierarchy that that is kind of similar yeah, to yeah, my yeah. work or it's an element of mindfulness about it so you kind of say oh I get what this is trying to do it's just in a different domain and of course it goes back to that collaboration piece but I think ultimately um, I, I was guided by service users say I want to have conversations about this and it was it was a very pragmatic thing for me to to actually you know I need to train myself up to have those conversations and, and take these conversations out of the shadows. Charles, I know it's a, it's a huge topic, and, but I, I, I've sort of been inspired by conversations I've had with you recently. And, and like I said, the sort of material that I've come across and, and your publications of various kinds um, to kind of challenge my own hesitancy about 
about sexuality as a topic, even for young people. I mean, it's an mm -hmm. issue that's certainly emerging for them as an area that they want to acknowledge and they want acknowledged by the systems that, that work with them. And although our hesitancy is very real, I think we need to understand how it might do a disservice to our client group if we don't address that. So thank you, uh, Giles. I know you're you're a very very busy man, and I I, um, I don't want to take up um, too much more of your time. But it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.